What a funny watch, remarked Alice. It tells the day of the month and doesn't tell what o'clock it is. Well, I don't know what time of day it is with you, but we have exactly 90 minutes to celebrate time itself in this, the April 1st edition of Look Here. I'm Pippa Curtis, and with me in the studio are Catherine Neal. Hello. Phil Lee. Hello. And Jane Fairs. Hello. And for the next hour and a half, we're going to look at the many faces of time in verse, prose and drama. Starting with verse and one of our greatest poets, William Shakespeare. Phil. When I do count the clock that tells the time and see the brave day sunk in hideous night... When I behold the violet past prime and sable curls all silvered over with white. When lofty trees I see barren of leaves which erst from heat did canopy the herd and summer's green all girded up in sheaves borne on the bier with white and bristly beard. Then of thy beauty do I question make that thou amongst the wastes of time must go since sweets and beauties do themselves forsake and die as fast as they see others grow. And nothing gainst time's scythe can make defence, save breed, to brave him when he takes thee hence. At precisely 2am on Sunday 26th of March 2023, the clocks went forward one hour in the UK. This will be a welcome change for millions of people across the country as they revel in the later sunsets and longer evenings. For those of us who are sick of the dark winter months, the clocks moving forward signify that summer is just on the horizon. However, that does mean we have to give up an hour in bed for the luxury. But why do the clocks have to change in the first place? The answer to this question may surprise you, and no, it doesn't have anything to do with the farmers, but it might have something to do with the soft rock band Coldplay. Catherine. The official world reference for time is Coordinated Universal Time, UTC, formerly known as Greenwich Mean Time, GMT, until 1972. Twice a year, about 70 countries, including the UK, the USA and all the countries in Europe, but not Brazil, Russia or China, for example, observe Daylight Saving Time, DST. In Europe, the start and end of DST was standardised across the European Union on the 22nd of October 1995. Therefore, all the clocks change at the same time, ensuring the UK is always an hour behind most of Europe. So when the UK switches to British summer time, most of Europe switches to Central European summer time, and this has been retained despite our leaving the EU. Let's be clear on one thing. You can't magic daylight out of thin air. The basic principle is to transfer an hour of daylight from the evening to the morning, and that's precisely what the Germans did two years into the First World War. Suffering from coal shortages, they changed the clocks to preserve energy by adding an extra hour onto the start of the workday. This was the first time DST had been put into practice. But the concept was far from new. Benjamin Franklin came up with a similar idea in a letter to Journal de Paris in 1784. He suggested the city could save an immense sum by not burning candles in the dark evening hours, 
but he fell short of recommending the clocks change to facilitate this. However, in the UK in 1900, a certain William Willett suggested to Parliament that changing the time would prevent wasting daylight. It's been strongly suggested that his reason was to make the evenings lighter so he had more time to play golf. In some respects, his wish came true when the UK adopted the German model in May 1916, and by 1918, the USA was on the same page. Apparently, it's got nothing to do with farmers. In fact, farmers have even lobbied Parliament to get rid of it. Dairy farmers argue that changing the time upsets the routines of livestock, and arable farmers complain they have to rush their crops to market because they've lost an hour in the morning. And it's not just farmers in the UK. The same sentiment has been echoed across the EU and the USA. Of course, there are plenty of other folks that want to see the end of DST. For a start, it's been argued that DST doesn't ironically save energy and it could be making people sick. For example, you're more likely to have a heart attack by as much as 20% in the weeks following the switch from BST to DST and vice versa, simply because of the disruption to your sleep pattern. So why do we change our clocks? It's a good question, and there aren't any clear answers, which is why there are always conversations taking place across the world about getting rid of DST, but don't hold your breath. The British Standard Time Experiment, a period of permanent BST in the UK between February 1968 and November 1971, was dropped after failing to convince the powers that be, or the population for that matter, of its worth, despite an overall drop in traffic incidents. You'll be wondering what Coldplay have to do with any of this. Well, William Willett, who you remember objected to our wasting of daylight, was Chris Martin's great-great-grandfather. Not sure if Chris is a fan of golf, but he probably appreciates everyone talking about clocks twice a year. We began with a few words from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. And later in the book... Alice meets the hooker-smoking caterpillar, who demands she recite You Are Old, Father William, a poem which shares its opening line, more or less, with another poem written some 60 years earlier by Robert Southey, The Old Man's Comforts and How He Gained Them. You Are Old, Father William is Carol's parody on Southey's work and deals with the same subject matter, the effects of time on the human frame, but in a predictably surrealist way. Jane. You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I feared it would injure the brain, but now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, why, I do it again and again. You are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before, and have grown most uncommonly fat. Yet you turned a back somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason of that? In my youth, said the sage, as he shook his grey locks, I kept all my limbs very supple by the use of this ointment, one shilling the box. Allow me to sell you a couple. 
You are old, said the youth, and your jaws are too weak for anything tougher than suet. Yet you finished the goose with the bones and the beak. Pray, how did you manage to do it? In my youth, said his father, I took to the law and argued each case with my wife, and the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. You are old, said the youth. One would hardly suppose that your eye was as steady as ever, yet you balanced an eel on the end of your nose. What made you so awfully clever? I have answered three questions, and that is enough, said his father. Don't give yourself airs. Do you think I can listen all day to such stuff? Be off, or I'll kick you downstairs. William Shakespeare's Sonnet 19 is concerned with the ravages of time upon the frame of his beloved, Phil. Devouring time, blunt thou the lion's paws and make the earth devour her own sweet brood. Pluck the keen teeth from the fierce tiger's jaws and burn the long-lived phoenix in her blood. Make glad and sorry seasons as thou fleetest and do whate'er thou wilt, swift-footed time, to the wide world and all her fading sweets. But I forgive thee one most heinous crime. O carve not with thy hours my love's fair brow, nor draw no lines there with thine antique pen. Him in thy course untainted do allow for beauty's pattern to succeeding men. Yet do thy worst, old time, despite thy wrong, my love shall in my verse ever live young. In 1935, while he was working on Murder in the Cathedral, T.S. Eliot wrote the first of his four quartets, Burnt Norton. Like the other three poems in this collection, the theme is man's relationship with time, the universe and the divine. Each poem associated with a particular location, Burnt Norton being a manor house that Eliot visited in the Cotswolds. The manor's garden serves as an important image within the poem. Catherine. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take, towards the door we never opened, into the rose garden. Fonia Carlton opens the door to her garden now, where she meets Mike Lane for this month's Growing Sense. Mike, I've got a big problem with my lawn. Well, this is the best time of the year to get that problem fixed. Do you reckon? Yes, yes. I mean, just look at it. It's really patchy and there's, like, big lumps of open space with no grass it's, it's yes i can see it's very bare isn't it i think the best bet is if we get a wire rake first off yes and we'll just just rake the lawn up just just keep raking it 
and then we will um, start disturbing the soil underneath it. Mm-hmm. And then we could put some grass seed down. Okay. Um, the, the soil is quite impacted. The soil is compact, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, we could also be looking at getting a fork to mm-hmm. aerate it. Mm-hmm. Push that fork down probably 10 centimetres, so four inches. Okay. And give it a good wiggle. Yeah. And that, that will allow some air to get into the lawn. Yes. Uh, help, and will help aerate the roots. Good. There's also some moss in this as well. There, there is. There's a lot of moss. So, I mean, yeah. what we could do is just run the scarifier over. Let's get all, all, all the moss out, as much moss out as, as possible, and then we treat it then with some weed and feed. Mm-hmm. And, yes, the lawn will look horrible for the t- <laughs> you know, to start off with. Um, but then over time, we can keep putting some seed over the top of it. Uh, and come sort of the end of May, you'll have a lovely, lush lawn again. Do I need to put anything on top of the seed? Some people occasionally like to put over some polythene, mm-hmm. um, stick some timber over over the edges, because okay. obviously then the wind can't get underneath. A bit like a greenhouse as well. Yes, yes, it um, warms so, the earth. So it warms the earth up. Mm. So I don't need to cover it in soil or sand or anything like no, that? No, I wouldn't. If we did get a very hot spell, it may be worthwhile just, just watering it. We don't mm. want those seeds to dry out. Okay. As soon as the seeds start to dry out, um, then that's, they've, had it. they've had it, basically. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good. Okay, Good. thank you for that. That's fine. So, this area you've had outside... I know, I'm really excited about it. we finally, at long last, taken the carpet off. Yep. We've spent a lot of time double-digging the soil. Hard that work. was hard work. Yes. And now we've just started deciding on a bit of a layout for this area. We've managed to get some paving, mm-hmm. two-foot square old paving slabs, which we're going to start laying um, later today. Uh, and then we've also got some fruit trees for you. We've got a apple tree. Lovely. Just a normal Cox apple tree. Oh, my favourite. A dark cherry tree as well, mm. which is going to hopefully have some lovely cherries so you'll be able to go out and just pull them off the tree. And also, because we're putting one of the trees up against the wall, I thought down the other end of the wall we could uh, put a grapevine Great, and yeah. try to grow some grapes up and across mm. so we can turn that wall into a lovely green space. Mm-hmm. We've already started on, on the wall already by putting on some wire rope. Oh, yes, for the vine for, to for attach to. For the vine to, to attach to. Yeah. Presumably we have to pin the vine onto that onto it. wire. And then we'll also use that wire as well for one of the espalier apple trees. Oh, lovely, sort of like uh, a cordon. Yes, yes. There's a couple of things we, we have to remember when we're planting apple trees, or any sort of tree generally, is to dig the hole to about the same size as the root ball. Mm-hmm. As we've got here, we've got some bare root trees. And they're the best, aren't they, for and they're the for best ones. This. So what we'll end up doing is digging the hole to the depth of the root ball, and then we'll go around the inside of the hole with the fork mm-hmm. to loosen right. it up a little bit, yep. Yeah. Uh, some multi-purpose compost into the hole and then just fill it up. Good. Another handy tip is if, if you ever plant a tree in the summer... Mm-hmm. Dig the hole up, just fill the hole up with water and then just let water soak away into into the ground. That will help the roots roots establish onto the tree. Right, so the apple tree and the grapevine, we have to plant at a 45-degree angle towards the wall. And then obviously the cherry tree is in a a different area Mm -hmm. of the garden, which we can go and have a look at now. Yeah, fabulous. It is muddy around here. 
Yeah. So this area now, uh, the plans to plant a cherry tree. Yes. In the, in the, in the centre. Um, as you can see, we've already started to mark out with some um, some long lengths of timber an actual flower bed. Oh, yes. Um, so, so as you can see, we're just using the timber as the edge. Mm -hmm. uh, we will plant a tree in the middle. Mm -hmm. and, and then the plan, um, well, this is my plan, I hope it's okay with you, yeah, go on. is that uh, we can then possibly put some wild flowers Perfect. under yeah. the tree. Yeah, yeah, I really like that uh, idea. And yes. this will be fantastic for the yeah. wildlife and Absolutely. bees yeah. and, and everything else. Yes, and it won't need a lot of looking after. No, really. no, exactly. And then obviously if, if any soft fruit, fruit does fall down, It'll just help the nutrients of, of, of the wildflowers. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of ways we can normally sow a wildflower area. Mm -hmm. uh, traditionally, quite often that's done by packets of seeds. Yes. And then you just basically rake over the area, sprinkle the seeds on top, water it. Over time, everything would come up. But today, I'm going to try something slightly different. Uh, we've got some plug plants here. Oh, lovely, yeah. Which yeah. are obviously small small plants. Yes. Uh, which I've actually bought from the internet. It's a, it's a mail order company. Mm -hmm. So we've got 50 wildflower plugs uh, for the price of £75 for 50 plants. Yes, yes. Um, compared to £3 for the seeds. But it'd be nice to get this established. Perhaps we could put some seeds in as well. As well, and it'd be interesting it, to see which succeeds. Which, which succeeds. Yeah. So basically, I'm just going to rake this area out, plant a tree, also put a stake, stake in, in yeah. just to give that tree a bit mm. of support. Probably put the stake in on an so, angle. On an angle, mm -hmm. just so the top itself, if, if the wind starts to blow, uh, the tree then can naturally just move around yes. um, and it's supported at, at the base. And you can take that away eventually. And yeah, you? we can yeah. take that away. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll plant these plugs. Um, we're sort of aiming for probably about seven in a metre squared mm -hmm. area mm -hmm. to start off with. And they'll spread. And they should they? spread. Yeah. They'll drop seeds down below. Sounds lovely. So we better get cracking here yes. then. Yep, I think so. Let's get on with it. Yeah, OK then. <laughs> <laughs> Do so. you want this fork? I'll start with that one. At the third stroke, it will be 8.57 precisely. At the third stroke... First introduced in Britain on the 24th of July, 1936, the speaking clock was created specifically by the General Post Office to settle disputes over time. Prior to this, the nation was largely run on mechanical wind-up clocks that were prone to drift and increasing numbers of people were ringing telephone exchanges to ask the time. Operators had been trained to check the exchange clock on the wall and say, the time by the exchange clock is. But this was not precise to the second, and operators could not always answer when the caller wanted. So it was decided that there should be a specific telephone number that people could ring to be given the correct, accurate time. The post office had a long history of helping people set their clocks from the days when many towns still operated on local time. This was before the railways arrived, which made it essential for everywhere to operate on a standardised Greenwich Mean Time. Before that, when it was midday in London, it might have been only 11.49am in Bristol. Apparently in those days, when the mail coach came in, villagers would gather around the coachman 
who would announce what the time was according to his timepiece, which had been set in London. This custom is thought to be where the phrase passing the time of day originated. At the third stroke, it will be 8.57. The first voice of the speaking clock was London telephonist Ethel, also known as Jane Kane, who was selected from a pool of 15,000 telephone operators who worked for the GPO in a nationwide competition to find the golden voice. The judges were poet laureate John Macefield, actress Dame Sybil Thorndyke, and chief BBC announcer Stuart Hibbard, and Ethel was awarded the princely sum of 10 guineas, the equivalent of almost £1,000 today, for her work. Both the service and Miss Kane became an instant hit. People wanting to know the time were no longer clogging up the telephone lines, calling just to ask the operator the time, and Kane's crisp pronunciation proved popular. In its first year of operation, the service logged around 13 million calls, or over 35,000 a day. The accuracy of the clock relied upon a time signal from the Royal Greenwich Observatory. Time announcements were made by playing short, recorded phrases or words in the correct sequence, giving the Greenwich time correct to one-tenth of a second. The original mechanism consisted of an array of motors, glass discs, photocells and valves, taking up the floor space of a small room, and the message was recorded optically onto the glass discs and replayed rather like a film soundtrack. Two speaking clock machines were made in case of breakdown. In comparison, the current digital speaking clock, first introduced in 1984, with built-in crystal oscillator and microprocessor logic control, has no moving parts at all occupies no more space than a small suitcase and is assured to be accurate to five thousandths of a second. But that initial equipment represented for those days state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology, an automated system that was ahead of its time. Initially, the service was only available in the London Directory area from the Hoban Exchange, but was rolled out nationwide in 1942. If you lived in one of the major UK cities, London, Birmingham, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Liverpool or Manchester, you would obtain the service by dialing the letters T-I-M or TIM, which corresponded to the digits 846 on a dial phone, whereas other areas dialed 952, which of course spells WUKUB. Engineers had conceived T-I-M as a shorthand for time, but it wasn't long before the service became known colloquially as TIM. The first speaking clock was taken out of service in 1963, replaced by a more modern transistor version using a magnetic drum and complete with a new voice. At the third stroke, it will be 7, 2 and 40 seconds. Pat Simmons, a London telephone exchange supervisor, won the second competition to find a voice for the speaking clock and a £500 prize. And that would have had a buying power of £13,000 today. At the third stroke, it will be five, five, and 50 seconds. At the third stroke... In 1984, Brian Cobby became the first male voice to take over the clock. 
an assistant supervisor at Withdean Exchange in Brighton, Brian had been an actor by profession before joining British Telecom and recording the five, four, three, two, one, Thunderbirds are go for the theme tune to the Jerry Anderson TV series. Surprisingly, there have only been four speaking clock voices, although temporary voices have been used on special occasions. The current voice is that of part-time voiceover artist Sarah Mendez de Costa, who won the role after entering a competition launched by BT and Children in Need in 2006. Chosen from over 18,000 entrants, Sarah took over the helm on the 2nd of April 2007 during Terry Wogan's BBC Radio 2 breakfast show. Third stroke. It will be 2, 43 and 20 seconds. Temporary voices have included Lenny Henry, Sir Ian McKellen, Claire Balding, Fern Cotton and Chris Moyles for comic relief. David Walliams, Joe Brand, Davina McCall and Gary Barlow for sport relief. Mae Whitman as part of a deal to promote the Disney production of Tinkerbell. And Alice Rowland, a 12-year-old schoolgirl who won a BBC Newsround competition to represent children's charity Childline. During the Cold War, the speaking clock network was designed to be used in case of a nuclear attack. Had such an attack taken place, then the clock would have broadcast messages from Strike Command at RAF High Wycombe to regional police stations. In turn, this would have triggered automatic warning sirens and alerts sent to Royal Observer Corps monitoring posts. Using an existing rather than dedicated system meant that it was effectively under test all the time. Customers would report any faults as soon as they occurred rather than risk having a problem with a dedicated line which would not be noticed until it was needed. Big Ben, the bell belonging to the world's most famous clock, checks its time with a speaking clock and many major organisations have permanent feeds from the clock to their internal phone systems so that employees can check the time without making an external call. All ITV television programmes are also synchronised to the speaking clock. For example, when the local station goes over to ITN for the news, this is done at the third stroke. At its height, the speaking clock commanded around 250 million calls per year. Despite all the digital devices where time can be accessed instantly, the speaking clock service still receives in the region of 12 million calls a year, with demand peaking on four time-sensitive days, New Year's Eve, the two days a year when the clocks change, and Remembrance Day. Here's some topical news from John Plush. I have before me a very up-to-the-minute piece displaying a photograph of an ex-Prime Minister and a tape measure. The whole thing under the headline, Buddy, Can You Spare a Groat? It reads thus. From our economics correspondent, dated 1st of April 2023. Britain looks set to reintroduce pre-decimalisation coinage. In an interview for Money Monthly, the UK economics minister, Chuck Lugner, is quoted as saying his department has been looking seriously at revitalising Britain's currency structure to better than ever before reflect her place in the world economy. The move, 
understood to be the brainchild of a former Secretary of State for Business and fully endorsed by an erstwhile leader of the UK Independent Party, follows on from Boris Johnson's failed 2022 attempt to take the country back to imperial weights and measures. This is an honourable proposition, said Mr Lugner. Britain is a proud nation, proud of her heritage and proud of the older style currency and the coinage which is a part of that. I believe the British public are ready for a change of values. In the proposals, a number of fundamental changes are included. The pound, currently 100 pence, will be replaced by the guinea, one pound and one shilling, or 105 pence. So goods currently valued at one pound would be repriced at one pound ten. Obviously, there's no reason for prices to increase, confirmed Mr Lugner. Another historic talisman set to return to our pockets is the florin, old value two shillings, replacing the ten pence piece which retains its current value, while crowns and half-crowns will also make a no-doubt welcome reappearance, claimed a government spokesman. Perhaps the most popular coin that all but vanished after 1967, but which is expected to make a comeback under the government's plans, is the old Thrupney bit, also known as a joey, or a groat, which will have a current value of just under 1.2 pence, making it the closest Britain will have to the penny farthing of old. Rumours that the sovereign will be renamed the President have not been confirmed. When actually was that published? Uh, April, uh, All Fool's Day. So it might not be entirely accurate. Well, no, whatever. Jane has even more fiction for us, this next piece written by Mark Daly for a competition in the USA. I have been obsessed with the future for my entire life. I yearn for a time when the roads will be filled with the near-silent hum of electric motors, driverless vehicles transporting their load to and from high rises in the city, a time when hospital waiting times are reduced to the time it takes a diagnostic tool to scan your body and dispense the appropriate medication, and a time when any material good would be available almost instantaneously at the touch of a button. I have read that all of these things may well be achievable in the next 60 years. This is, of course, exciting news, but 60 years is two more lifetimes away for me, and right now that seems like an eternity. What if I don't make it? So, now that I find myself confronted by an eccentric old gentleman who claims to have discovered a way to deliver us into the future, I listen to what he has to say. We're standing in a bookshop in the high street, where I've been leafing through a copy of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. He called me over and asked me whether I'd ever thought about time travel for real. Well, who hasn't? I have a machine that can transport you instantly to any date up to 80 years in the future. Have you tried it? I ask nervously. Unfortunately not, my boy. I'm too old, you see, and my body will likely not withstand the strain. I have, however, tested it with my dog. I sent him two weeks into the future two weeks ago, and here he 
is. I picked him up from this very spot this morning. Sure enough, his loyal canine companion sits by his side panting. OK, I say. I'll give it a try. Strap me in. That's the spirit, my lad. £500, please. I take my wallet out and with a quick swipe of that little plastic rectangle, my account is debited. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm not going to travel into the future any faster than one day at a time. I'm already doing that on a daily basis. All right, he beams back at me. He's visibly excited. And I follow him into a small, brightly lit back room in the shop. The room is crisp and polished. There's a clinical feel to the place. Over by an adjacent wall is a machine that looks like a motion simulator. He signals for me to enter the machine. I fold my body in and my new old friend straps my legs in and then my arms. What time do you want to go to? Send me 50 years into the future, I demand. Now feeling as though this has been an elaborate display designed to get me to test his new ride. Fifty years it is. As he says that, he springs into action and fiddles with the many dials on the machine. His liver-spotted hands are plagued with tremors, a true marker of his advancing years. When you arrive at your destination, the machine will wake you up and the straps around your legs and arms will loosen. Don't stand up too fast, as you might be dizzy. What do you mean, wake up? I plead. Why am I going to sleep? My protestations have come too late, and he picks up a large syringe full of liquid. His hands, suddenly held steady, plant the needle right in the side of my neck. The straps hold me in place as my body tenses and struggles to break free. But with each second, the strength drains out of me and my vision blurs. My image of the world closes in until blackness. I awake from the blackness and the strange machine makes a shrill beeping sound as the cuffs around my wrists and ankles pop off. I go to stand, but receive an immediate dizzy reminder of the old man's warning. I sit back down and give myself a moment. I try again. My legs feel unfamiliarly unsteady and weak. I grip onto the side of the machine for support. Hello, I shout out. Anyone there? Please, I've been drugged. Nothing. There is nobody here. The small room I entered a few minutes ago seems dimmer now and dirty. I stumble over to the sink in the corner and grab the sides, allowing it to support my weight. I raise my head towards the dusty mirror above the basin and shriek. I'm instantly chilled. Instead of my neatly trimmed brown hair, is half a head of wiry greys, and my hairline retreated back towards the crown. My eyes, which once were a shimmering, glinting green, look weary and cloudy. 
The skin on my face, which a few moments ago was taut and springy, now sags limply downwards. I look at my hands, which show a similarly wrinkled appearance. A liver spot has appeared on my right hand. But this can't be happening. There has to be some mistake. Hello? I shout again, becoming increasingly desperate. Hello? Please help me. Anyone? Tears well in front of my dulled eyes. I feel hopelessly helpless. My hands search my pockets for answers. Any clue as to what has happened? My left hand finds something in the pocket of my jacket. A slip of paper. I take it out and unfold it. The writing is blurred. I squint until it comes into something resembling focus. Live for the moment. Shelves now adorned with emptiness line the walls of the front room. Dust is the shop's greatest commodity now. I scan the room and spot a box on a shelf. Inside the box, I'm surprised to find a pocket watch. It flicks itself open and resumes its taunting tick-tock. I limp slowly towards the exit, every step taking an immense toll on my aged joints and push the door open. Vehicles whiz quickly up and down the street in near silence. At least there's that. Oh my goodness, 52 minutes to go and still we have Philip Larkin, Arnold Bennett, A. Hausman and much more to come. Let's hurry back to the 15th century. Catherine. We may be used to having calendars and diaries to track the passing of time and to plan our activities over the course of a year. But of course, for most people, for most of history, calendars and diaries have been pointless. If you worked the land and generally did not travel too far away from home, then the year was a sequence of tasks in step with the changing seasons. Gardeners, of course, still have this particular relationship with the passing of time and its consoling repetition. Here's a little verse of rhyming couplets from the mid-1400s, which sums up the year, starting with... January. By this fire I warm my hands. February. And with my spade I delve my lands. March. Here I set my thing to spring. April. And here I hear the fowlies sing. May. I am as light as bird in bough. June. And I weighed my corn well enow. Julie. With my scythe, my mead, I moor. Augusta. And here I shear my corn full low. September. With my flail, I earn my bread. October. And here I saw my wheat so red. November. At Martinmas, I kill my swine. December. And at Christmas, I drink red wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely, wasn't it? No, it's just very nice. Aprila. OK, if you find you have time on your hands, you may want to borrow one of our talking books. This month, Phil has chosen an Agatha Christie. Thank 
famous detective Hercule Poirot accepts an invitation to play bridge at the Park Lane home of Mr. Shai Tana. The owner of a moustache, Poirot notes reluctantly, to rival that of the Belgian detective himself. They meet at an exhibition of snuff boxes in London. Mr. Shai Tana is a collector of fine objects and, he boasts, of murderers. And not just second-rate murderers, the ones that have been caught, but those who have committed the crime and, so far, got away with it. Four of the guests are above suspicion. Poirot himself, Colonel Race of the British Secret Service, Superintendent Battle from Scotland Yard, and Ariadne Oliver, an apple-munching crime novelist. When the novel was published in 1936, Agatha Christie readers knew all four from previous books, though this would be Ariadne's first appearance in a Poirot novel. The remaining guests will be the suspects, those who Mr Shaitana believes to have killed before. There will be four, a table of bridge, just four suspects from which you may choose to select a killer once you have considered all the evidence. Two tables of four playing cards then and Mr Shaitana dozing by the fire. It's a crime story, so someone's got to go. I won't say who, but how could anyone have done it? It's a perfect locked room situation. No outsiders, and so no one to claim, as they usually do in most crime novels of this period, it must have been a homicidal maniac, a tramp who got in through the French windows. This is a murder where psychology will prove the key to motive and method. A perfect test for the little grey cells, both Poirot's and yours. But from here my lips are sealed plot-wise, because any hint would spoil an almost perfectly crafted whodunit. The reader of this abridged three-hour version is Geraldine James, and what a good job she does. Here she sets the opening scene. Cards on the Table by Agatha Christie My dear Monsieur Poirot. It was a soft, purring voice. A voice used deliberately as an instrument, nothing impulsive about it. Hercule Poirot swung round. My dear Mr. Chitana, he said. Around them a well-dressed, languid London crowd eddied. Voices drawled. It was the exhibition of snuff-boxes at Wessex House. Admission one guinea in aid of the London hospitals. My dear man, said Mr. Chitana, how nice to see you. Is there to be a robbery here this afternoon? That would be too delicious. She is clear and wonderfully modulated throughout and conveys the personalities of the characters without difficulty. No mean feat with so many of them. There are three CDs, and if you enjoy crime fiction, or simply wish to give it a try, without the fearsome and morbid detail of more modern tales, then this could be for you. If you'd like to borrow this audiobook, let us know at Colin Chance House, and we'll send it to you as soon as it becomes available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to, and however you're listening to it, we wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. Thank you, Phil. Here's a poem called Alarm Clock by Joyce Kilmer. Jane. When dawn strides out to wake a dewy farm across green fields and yellow hills of hay, the little twittering birds laugh in his way and poise triumphant on his shining arm. He bears a sword of flame but not to harm the wakened life that feels his quickening sway, and barnyard voices shrill, it is day, take by his grace 
a new and alien charm. But in the city, like a wounded thing that limps to cover from the angry chase, he steals down streets where sickly arc lights sing and wanly mock his young and shameful face, and tiny gongs with cruel fervour ring in many a high and dreary sleeping place. Alarm Clock by Joyce Kilmer In a moment, John Plush will be looking at cuckoo clocks. But first, here's a poem published in Family Friend Poems in August 2020, written by Barbara Crooker. In the Middle In the middle of a life that's as complicated as everyone else's, struggling for balance, juggling time, the mantle clock that was my grandfather's has stopped at 9.20. We haven't had time to get it repaired. The brass pendulum is still. The chimes don't ring. One day you look out the window, green summer. The next, and the leaves have already fallen, and a grey sky lowers the horizon. Our children almost grown, our parents gone. It happened so fast. Each day we must learn again how to love, between morning's quick coffee and evening's slow return. Steam from a pot of soup rises, mixing with the yeasty smell of baking bread. Our bodies twine, and the big black dog pushes his great head between, his tail a metronome, three-four time. We'll never get there. Time is always ahead of us, running down the beach, urging us on, faster, faster. But sometimes we take off our watches. Sometimes we lie in the hammock, caught between the mesh of rope and the net of stars, suspended, tangled up in love, running out of time. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. False. It's not clear who built the first cuckoo clock, but whoever it was, they weren't in Switzerland when they did it, despite that well-known comment in Graham Greene's The Third Man by Orson Welles' character Harry Lyme. In addition to the familiar gong-like chiming mechanism for announcing the hour, the cuckoo clock's often shrill, mechanically produced cuckoo-like call is accompanied, of course, by an equally alarming cuckoo-like puppet which bursts through a small door in the front of the clock's casing at 60 and sometimes 30-minute intervals. There are musical cuckoo clocks too, which have other automata which move when the music box plays. Traditionally, the cuckoo sound is created by two tiny pipes inside the clock with bellows attached to their tops. The clock's movement activates the bellows to send a puff of air into each pipe alternately when the timekeeper strikes. The cuckoo clock was invented in 1730 by a clockmaster called Franz Anton Ketterer from the Black Forest. At least that's what priest Marcus Fidelis Yeck claimed in the early 1800s. But no, that too is false. Although we know neither by whom nor indeed in what place the cuckoo clock was invented, it happened before the clock-making industry even started in the Black Forest. It was known about as early as 1650 
but it took nearly a century for this avian timepiece to find its way to that part of southwest Germany, where, even having landed, it remained on its perch for many decades a tiny niche product. They'd been making clocks in the Black Forest since the late 17th century, but they hadn't included an automaton cuckoo bird in their products. Having caught on to the idea, though, they did develop it and kind of made it their own. They're still coming up with new designs and technical improvements even now and have made the cuckoo clock a valued work of art all over the world. In recent years, quartz battery-powered cuckoo clocks have become available. As on their mechanical counterparts, the cuckoo bird emerges from its enclosure and moves up and down. But on the quartz timepieces, it also flaps its wings and opens its beak while it sings. Instead of the call being reproduced by the traditional bellows, it is a digital recording of a cuckoo calling in the wild, and is usually accompanied by the sound of a waterfall and other birds in the background. One thing that's unique about a quartz cuckoo clock is that it can incorporate a light sensor, so that when the lights are turned off at night, it will automatically silence the hourly chime. The decorative weights are still cast in the shape of pine cones, but made of plastic. The pendulum weight is often made to resemble a carved leaf, but the weights and pendulum are purely ornamental, since the clock is driven by battery power. The centre of cuckoo clock production continues to be the Black Forest region of Germany, in the area of Schonach and Titisee-Neustadt. Even today, the cuckoo clock is a favourite souvenir of travellers to Austria, Germany and, of course, Switzerland. Now, do you like to get up early or do you turn over for another snooze once you've switched off the alarm, like me? And then at the other end of the day, turn in reluctantly when it's nearing midnight? Are you known among your friends as someone who is conscientiously punctual, always turning up on the dot? Or are you always the one who will be a little late? Catherine. Our personal relationship with time fascinates me. In some ways, we have very little power over it. When the new year arrived a few weeks ago, for example, I found that of all my family, I was the only one still in 2022, while relatives in Australia, Hungary and Belgium were happily striding into 2023 and sending greetings by text as before I reached it. The turning of the globe aside, the actual patterns of our days and nights may feel settled and matters of common sense, but they are, of course, pretty flexible. At both ends of life, in babyhood and in old age, Human beings sleep and wake without regard to established routine. The National Trust property, Lower Brockhampton, just outside Bromyard, tells the visitor in one of the bedrooms about the practice of the second sleep. In the pre-industrial era, people would sleep in two phases, once from the early evening, waking up for an hour or two in what we would consider the middle of the night, and then again for a period before morning. Whenever I go to Lower Brockhampton, I do wonder about why people would form the habit of waking up in the cold and dark, but the answer must, of course, be to do with the working habits and hours of most people, then. A lot of the difference must have been to do with having to work in daylight and having little decent light in the evenings, especially during autumn, winter and spring. 
the practical demands of available light, would have determined just about everything. And so too, of course, with mealtimes. Breakfast, brunch, elevenses, lunch, tea time, dinner, supper. The times and the terms for our meals have changed and are still changing. When I was a child, for example, we had dinner in the middle of the day and tea at the end of the afternoon. Living in Scotland, we might occasionally have high tea at the end of the afternoon, a repast specifically including something cooked, albeit lighter than that served at dinner time. Nowadays, I have lunch in the middle of the day and dinner at some unspecified and usually quite late time in the evening. Perhaps the most notable meals to change, however, have been breakfast, lunch and dinner. Breakfast, technically the breaking of the fast, when religious orders were not permitted to eat before the first services of the day, became a significant meal during the Industrial Revolution needed to provide people with fuel and energy for the day's work. Luncheon was only coined as a term at the beginning of the 19th century and seems to have been a meal particularly enjoyed by ladies, ladies who lunch, obviously, not just a modern phenomenon. Dinner, always the main meal of the day, has moved around quite startlingly and is always tied into matters of social class. When we read about scenes around the table in drama and fiction, we tend to be reading about a relatively leisured class. Dinner has in the past been served at times that may seem quite odd to us. Jane Austen's characters seem to have been sitting down at 3pm, for example. The banquets in Shakespeare's plays, notably the one in the Scottish play, which ended with an unwelcome guest, were very late-night affairs. So next time you sit down and shake out your napkin in anticipation, spare a moment to identify the meal and the moment. Arnold Bennett, known principally for his novels set in the potteries, didn't restrict himself to fictional storytelling. His output also included plays for the theatre, opera, film and non-fiction works, including lifestyle self-help books, the most enduring of which is How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. Jane. Bennett begins by reflecting on our counterintuitive tendency to value money over time. This is a topic which has been discussed as far back as the Stoics and, more recently, by the financial independence movement. He writes, Newspapers are full of articles explaining how to live on such and such a sum, but I've never seen an essay how to live on 24 hours a day. Yet it has been said that time is money. That proverb understates the case. Time is a great deal more than money. If you have time, you can obtain money, usually. But you cannot buy yourself a minute more time. Next, he urges people to realise what a wonder it is that our daily allocation of time appears anew each time we wake. The supply of time is truly a daily miracle. You wake up in the morning and, lo, your purse is magically filled with 24 hours of the unmanufactured tissue of the universe of your life. It is yours. Bennett's original audience consisted of working people of slim means used to structuring their lives around money. For this reason, he uses money as a metaphor for time to make the abstract concept seem more real. You cannot draw on the future impossible to get into debt. 
You can only waste the passing moment. You cannot waste tomorrow. It is kept from you. You have to live on this 24 hours of time. Out of it, you have to spin health, pleasure, money, content, respect, and the evolution of your immortal soul. Its right use is a matter of the highest urgency. Perhaps one of the starkest and most memorable lines in the book is this. We shall never have more time. We have, and have always had, all the time there is. Bennett encourages us to focus on how we can use our time to improve ourselves, stating that it is never too late. You can turn over a new leaf every hour, if you choose. Bennett reminds us that just as money can be spent on anything, so can time. And, as Seneca reminded us, most of us fail to understand time until it's too late. Bennett foreshadows modern research on habit change and personal development, which urges people to start small. Beware of undertaking too much at the start. Be content with quite a little. Allow for accidents. Allow for human nature, especially your own. A glorious failure is better than a petty success. Having set the stage, Bennett begins to discuss exactly how much time his audience has available to them. It's a simple fact that most of us believe we work for far more hours than we do. The average person's estimate of their work week is out by 20 hours. Most workers are only productive for three hours a day. You say your day is already full to overflowing. How? You actually spend in earning your livelihood how much? Seven hours on the average, and in sleep, seven? I will add another two to be generous, and I will defy you to account for me the other eight hours on the spur of the moment. Looking at the example of the average office worker at the time, Bennett reflects on our skewed attitude to work. He persists in looking at the hours from 10 to 6 as the day, to which the 10 hours preceding and the 6 hours following are an epilogue and prologue. This general attitude is illogical and unhealthy. Bennett describes the average person's evening, which has changed little in the last century. You are pale and tired. In an hour or so you sit up and you feel you could take a little nourishment. And you do. Then you potter, you play cards, you flirt with a book, you take a stroll, you caress the piano. By Jove, a quarter past eleven. Bennett suggests employing an hour and a half each evening for cultivating the mind, which still leaves 45 hours a week for errands, adventure and seeing friends. My contention is that those seven and a half hours will quicken the whole life of the week, add zest to it, and increase the interest which you feel in even the most banal occupation. Bennett advocates an exercise which has much in common with the mindfulness meditation, an idea which had yet to reach this country. When you leave your house, concentrate your mind on a subject, no matter what to begin with. You will have not gone ten paces before your mind has skipped away under your very eyes and is lurking around the corner with another subject. Bring it back by the scruff of the neck. Ere you have reached a station, you will have brought it back 40 times. Do not despair, keep it up. You will succeed. Energy and alertness, the perfect remedy for a bout of lethargy. 
a prescription to stop sluggishness, comes in the form of A. Hausmann's Revali. Revali is the name given to the bugle or drum call that signifies the dawning of the day to soldiers, which is a great deal more effective than a tinny, bleeping alarm. To be straight to the point, the English translation of the original French verb is wake up. Rather blunt, perhaps, but any term used by the military is not going to do things subtly. Hausmann does command, perceive the clear instruction wake in the first two stanzas, as well as the resounding shout of up, lad, up. But this poem is not a harsh blow akin to being doused in cold water. Its ability to wake comes in its atmospheric description, its sounds, its sights, its internal vigour and liveliness. It's not just about physical waking, clambering from the covers and pulling yourself upright, but waking yourself mentally, awakening to the world around you with all its possibilities. And this is definitely a poem to be read aloud once you're up and about, not just to drive the feeling home, but because it's just designed to be. Its words leap from the page and demand to be put into your mouth, filling you up with their vitality and verve. And lines such as, The vaulted shadow shatters, trampled to the floor it spanned, and the tent of night in tatters straws the sky-pavilioned land, just don't have the same effect unless they are spoken. While it's certainly useful for a general day-to-day wake-up call, there is an added urgency and indeed a strong sense of pathos in the poem. Rivali is the fourth in Hausmann's cycle of poems, A Shropshire Lad, which features war, death and loss of many kinds, and of which the overriding theme is mortality. Whilst it's not advisable to become gripped by fear and run ragged trying to pack a million and one things into each day, the reminder to wake up and seize the day is a valuable one. So, sound that siren, shake the laziness from your bones, embrace the day and days ahead, and get up and go before it goes for good. Wake, the silver dusk returning up the beach of darkness brims, and the ship of sunrise burning strands upon the eastern rims. Wake, the vaulted shadow shatters, trampled to the floor it spanned, and the tent of night in tatters straws the sky-pavilioned land. Up, lad, up, tis late for lying, hear the drums of morning play. Hark, the empty highways crying, Who'll beyond the hills away? Towns and countries woo together. Forelands beacon, belfries call. Never lad that trod on leather lived to feast his heart withal. Up, lad, thews that lie and cumber sunlit pallets never thrive. Morns abed and daylight slumber were not meant for man alive. Clay lies still, but blood's a rover. Breaths aware that will not keep. Up, lad, when the journey's over, there'll be time enough to sleep. Phil. I was interested to read recently about the Crypt of Civilization, which is a sealed airtight chamber built in the 1930s at the Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, Georgia. 
It measures 2,000 cubic feet and is meant to remain unopened until the year 8113. It contains oodles of stuff, including sound recordings that illustrate human development. Classic literature and religious works are deposited there, together with items illustrating scientific progress. It's a record of human knowledge over the preceding 6,000 years. Oglethorpe is also the home of the International Time Capsule Society, set up in 1990, which aims to record the whereabouts of all the capsules in existence, including those in outer space, of which two currently exist. Voyager Golden Record 1 and 2 are time capsules that were attached to two Voyager spacecrafts and were launched in 1977. The capsules consist of a gramophone record meant to illustrate culture on Earth to any intelligent extraterrestrial life. Music, natural sounds, images from around the world and greetings in 55 languages are included. We'll return to the gramophone record later. It's a problem. The idea of the capsule is a fairly recent one in world history and, if you've got a moment, I'll tell you why. For most of human existence so far, the idea of showing the future what the past or present was like would have seemed pointless. The future would be exactly like the present, which was exactly like the past, give or take a few details like weather, famine or abundance, stability or disorder. People's lives and surroundings, their jobs, their homes didn't change, so why should the future be any different? What Grandma could remember was just like the present. Same clothes, same work, same religion, etc. Only the modern world, with its constant change and our expectation that this will continue, leads us to think that the future will be other than the here and now, and that therefore the present is worth recording, as it's bound to be different fairly soon. So let's get down to brass tacks. What would we put in a time capsule for the future to uncover? And if we set a date for its opening, when would we choose? I only ask the last question because I saw recently that Queen Elizabeth II has left a secret letter for the people of Sydney, Australia, to be opened, specifically, in the year 2085. Would you fill your capsule with stuff? Newspapers? Photos, perhaps? Or with recordings, say film, music? The problem with that, of course, is technology. Remember the gramophone records to be played in 8113? Excuse me, but I don't have the tech to play gramophone records now in 2023. I've already gone through records, cartridges, cassettes, mini-discs, CDs and streaming in my lifetime. And I'm only 21. <laughs> and when shall we let people open it? Too soon and it'll be too familiar and therefore dull. Too long and it might be meaningless without expert analysis. Imagine that Stone Age folks had left us a capsule, a few flints, some crude representations of figures that might be gods or Auntie Mabel and the kids, some animal bones. What would we make of that? So many questions. I wonder if it's possible to sum up time in this fashion, because in a way that's what we'd be doing, setting out to explain our time and to guess at the changes to come that would make that interesting to our descendants. But it's fun to think about, wouldn't you say? And the expert analysts would be today's archaeologists. And guess what? We have one here in the studio, in the form of Jane Fairs, herself an experienced artefactorist. Jane. I was woken up one night in Egypt by the jeep, starting up at about three in the morning. Funny, thinks I. When I finally woke up to start work at 5.30am, I found out that our cook, Ali, had had a heart attack. 
The boss had gone down to the River Nile in the jeep, woken up the boatman to row him across, managed to find someone to take him to the nearest town about three miles away for a doctor. When he returned by the same route, our cook was dead. How lucky we are with our NHS. And then there was the time in Beirut when we were working in the middle of the city before the developers moved in. Iron-aged finds through to the present day plus layers of mosaic floors of the houses of rich merchants in the Roman period and before. Trundling along, troweling away, I suddenly found myself overlooked by a bulldozer. Better get that done quickly, said a voice. We're running out of time. Needless to say, it was all hands to the deck to get the pavement shifted before it was ripped up. Archaeology always runs out of time. The best finds are usually found on the last day or nearabouts. There is never enough time to do what you want to do before you have to leave. In Egypt, you cannot take your work with you. Come to that, there's always more to discover and never enough time to achieve what you had in mind. I suppose you have to leave something for those who come after. And that is what our audio playhouse is about this month leaving something for those who come after, but not necessarily what they would want. Worcester Talking Magazine presents John Stanbury's The Passage of Time. Video log for Tuesday the 31st of March 2020. Professor Clovis Matter assisted by Dr. Stella Palstave. As you can see behind me, Dr. Palstave and I are standing in the third chamber of King Sneferu's North Pyramid. The entrance we are about to open is that of the fourth chamber. Who knows what secrets lie beyond this portal? So, Professor Mattock, What's the significance for you of this excavation? Well, Miss... Um, Scriblet. Scriblet. Well, Miss uh, Scriblet, as your readers will no doubt be aware, this, the Red Pyramid, is the second of two pyramids built here in Dashur by King Snefru of the Fourth Dynasty, and it's thought to be where he's buried. However, a sarcophagus has never actually been found. My theory is that there is at least one chamber yet to be opened up and that this chamber may prove to be the final resting place of the king. Professor Mattock, they're about to break through. Thank you, Stella. Now, Miss, um, you should hang around. You may have yourself a scoop here within the next hour. Uh, carefully does it, boys. Shadow, bring the camcorder over here. Yes, boss. This is most unusual. I've not seen stonework like this before. Okay. Have you, Stella? No, I've not. Okay. There she goes. Yeah. Shadow, did you record that? Yes, boss. Good. Now, let's see. Stella, pass me my torch, would you? Oh, my. Oh, my word. Well, that's different, all right. Stella, look here. You see those hieroglyphs? Professor Mattock, sir, that journalist woman's here. She says you told her to stay close. Oh, not this close, Mason. Take her back up. Uh, yes, sir. This is not what I expected. Miss, uh, Professor Mattock says... Not at all what I expected. 
that there's an opening large enough for us to pass through, Dr. Palstave and I have crawled into the chamber. It is not as large as I have anticipated, some 10 metres by about 8 and roughly 4 metres high. The hieroglyphics displayed here are extremely unusual for an ancient Egyptian chamber and have much more in common with Chinese characters than anything I've ever encountered on this continent. As you can probably see, apart from the pictograms on the walls, the chamber itself is almost completely without further interest. Except that is for one thing. Why would they leave a body just lying on the floor in an anteroom to what we hope is the king's burial chamber? A god, maybe? You think? How was he supposed to survive? There's no water supply, and what about food? There's nothing to suggest that he's meant to be here at all. There aren't any belongings that I can... Oh, hold on, what's this? What have you found? I'm sure I don't know. Look. What the... Put the video on again. Uh-huh. OK. 12.14, Tuesday the 31st of March, 2020. We have the most astonishing find here. On the floor of the fourth chamber, the anteroom, I believe, to the tomb of King Sneferu, is what is unmistakably a modern Chinese ID card. I thought this room had been sealed for the last four and a half thousand years. So did we all. Do you suppose it was tomb robbers? Cleared the place out, then argued about the booty, perhaps, and killed one of them. Left the body here. It's a plausible theory, but there's no sign of the entrance being breached. And look closer. See the date on the card? 2040? That's impossible. Unless it's a fake ID, one that got printed wrong. They'd have thrown it away because it's no good. Hmm. Get Mason to organise for these bones to be taken up top and have them sent for analysis. I want to know how long that body's been here. Oh, and can you find a translator for the lettering on the wall? Looks like Chinese to me. I would say from these photographs that, yes, you're right, it's, it's clearly Mandarin. But as a specialist in Eastern culture, I have to admit that these are not quite the characters that I'm familiar with. An earlier form, perhaps? Uh, rather the opposite, I suspect. More streamlined, even, than present-day popular Mandarin, but recognisable. Leave these with me and I'll, I'll see what I can do. Thank you, Dr Pangloss. There's one other little thing. What's this? Uh, um, ah, yes, th that's an easy one. This is just an identity card from the People's Institute for Scientific Studies in Tianjin, issued to one Dr. Sandui Chua in... Oh. Dr. Pangloss? Um, uh, well, th there must be some mistake. It says issue date, but, but they can't mean that. You could contact them direct. I'll, I'll find their number for you. Could you? Um... Oh, d don't worry. They'll speak English. So what did they say? 
Basically, they denied all knowledge of this San Dui Chua. They said he'd never worked there. They were very interested in where we found it, though. Any luck with the lab? Yes, they did their carbon dating routine on it. That skeleton is definitely Old Kingdom. They're suggesting about 2500 BC. So, none of this is making any sense. How do you mean? I heard back from our Dr Pangloss. The translator guy? Yeah. He confirms that the hieroglyphics are an advanced form of Mandarin. Apparently they speak of the next chamber containing items from the second millennium. What, like a sarcophagus? Or a pharaoh? Uh, second millennium AD. AD? You mean... You mean like now? Today? And they demand specifically that the next chamber not be opened. Oh, a curse, as usual. A warning. Professor Mastock, how do you do? My name is San Dui Chua. Dr. San Dui Chua. I believe you have something on mine. date on the card is correct. Hmm. So the People's Institute for Scientific Studies date their identity cards in advance for people who don't work for them? Yes, I'm sorry. I understand why you might be a little confused. I'm afraid there's even more to it than that. I'm fascinated. How did a Chinese ID card with your photograph on it, but dated 20 years from now get to be on the floor of an Egyptian tomb that's been sealed for the last four and a half thousand years. Ah, let me explain. Back in the 90s, I studied nuclear physics in the UK. After I got my doctorate, though, I returned to mainland China and joined the PISS in Tianjin in 2000. Uh -huh. My department at the Institute was concerned with the safe disposal of nuclear waste. It was a critical issue. Indeed. Nobody knew what to do with it. That stuff can take thousands of years to decay. But after a lot of research, we hit on a way to dispose of high-level waste in a manner that we believe would keep it out of the way of humans for long enough for it to become harmless to them. And that was? One of the other departments of the Institute had been experimenting with quantum mechanics studying how time can occupy several dimensions. Whoa, we're just simple Egyptologists, Dr. San. Time in several dimensions? The multiverse, Professor. The quantum team proved that the multiverse is much more than just theoretical concept. Still not quite with you, Dr. San. The multiverse? How does that help? <sighs> it allows time travel. Oh, right. By the year 2040, the science was sufficiently advanced to allow to transport physical objects to different points in time. Excuse me. You speak of 2040 in the past tense, but we're only in 2020. Time is relative, Dr. Pastev. When scientists start playing with time, tense become somewhat irrelevant. OK. So you reckon they took your ID card and sent it back in time to King Snefru's tomb in ancient Egypt. Even if they could, why the blazes should anybody want to do that? It wasn't just the ID card, Professor Matok. 
You remember, my speciality at the Institute was nuclear waste disposal. Oh, my God. Are you saying they sent a pile of radioactive waste back to the ancient Egyptians? The stuff was going to be buried in a desert, nearly a kilometer below the surface. Deeper than you're burying your nuclear waste today. And with all the modern safeguards. We calculated the decay rate of the material. We knew from history that the ancient civilizations would not have the ability to disturb a site at that depth until long after radiation would have decayed to an insignificant level. But that's preposterous, and you know it. The idea of carting tons of nuclear waste four and a half thousand years into the past and dumping it in the Egyptian desert? I'm sorry, Dr. Sanchoa, or whoever you are. I don't believe any of it. What do you say, Stella? I say I'd like to know why Dr San has come here now. Your Institute of Scientific Studies has never heard of you. Professor Mattock spoke to them only yesterday. Yes, yesterday they probably would have said that. But I received a message from them that somebody had found my old ID card and where they had found it. And that's why I'm here. There are things you should know, Professor Mattock, before you continue with this excavation. Like what? There was a problem. Uh, two problems, in fact. Firstly, the directors of the Institute made changes to the materials that were going to be buried. Some of it had a longer half-life, meaning that it would take longer to decay than we had calculated for. OK, that's bad enough. What's the second problem? When the work began at the site, the construction crew's drawings showed a barrier depth far shallower than we had specified. Why was that? Too expensive to dig that deep. I objected. I tried to stop the whole thing, but they overruled me. I said it was irresponsible and that I would let the whole world know the story when we got back to our own time if they went ahead with it. But they went ahead anyway. Oh, yes, they went ahead and kept me under lock and key until the work was finished. And then? And then they left me to die from radiation poisoning in the anteroom to the waste chamber and sealed the entrance. Video log for the 10th of April 2020. It would seem that the body we discovered in the fourth chamber is that of Dr. San Dui Chua of the Chinese People's Institute for Scientific Studies. The very same Dr. San Dui Chua who was sitting in my porter cabin only this afternoon. I must say, for someone who's been dead for four and a half thousand years, he's looking remarkably fit. I don't know, Stella. Do you buy any of this time travel nonsense? There are parts of San's story that tie up with the hieroglyphics we've seen in the outer chambers. If King Snefri really is buried in the fifth chamber, next to a pile of radioactive waste, it would explain why so many of the burial party became ill and died a short while after. Could be from radiation. Well, I suppose so. There are many stories of people who entered the pyramid and then died from mysterious illnesses but it's not necessarily on account of radiation. The thing is, do we risk it? Breaking through into the fifth chamber if it does actually contain radioactive material? San would know. Have you seen him recently? You can never find a nuclear physicist when you really need one. In this dimension or the next. 
Ah, there's Mason. Professor Matic. Mason? Professor Matic. Can you get Dr. Shadroof radioed me. The passageway to the fourth chamber has collapsed behind him and his team. They're all trapped inside. Well, get people down there and uh, dig it out. It'll take hours to clear that passage. Professor Matok, what's the problem? Ah, Dr San. Look, I'm sorry I was so disbelieving of your story, but now it seems we have a problem of our own. There's been a rockfall of some sort. We have half a dozen men trapped in the fourth chamber. I wonder... You've got men working in there? Yes, they're preparing but to break I told through. you there's a radiation risk, even in the anteroom. You have to get them out of there it's, immediately. It's a bad fall, sir. The whole length of the passage has collapsed. What tools do they have? What? What tools are they using? Picks? Shovels? What? Well, yes. Picks, drills, stuff to break through the wall to I the... I think I know how we can get them out. I know from the drawings there's a ventilation shaft running up from the fifth chamber. If they can access that, they can climb up to the third level personnel shaft and then go on to the outside. But they're not in the fifth chamber, they're in the fourth. And surely the radiation's worse in the fifth chamber than where they are at the moment. Yes, but if they can break through into the fifth, they'll go immediately to the vent shaft. By now, the residual radiation from the canisters will be too weak to cause severe illness as long as they are there for no more than about 30 seconds. But if the radiation is weaker in the anteroom, why shouldn't we just get down there and rebuild the passage? It'll only take a few hours. Believe me, Professor, if those men stood right next to those canisters for even half a minute, they wouldn't pick up nearly as much radiation as they would if they were stuck in the anteroom for several hours waiting for rescue. As it is, their exposure is already mounting and every minute they spend in the fourth chamber reduces the number of seconds they can afford to spend in the fifth, crossing to the venture. Very well, Sam. Take Mason's radio and tell Shadoff exactly where to break through. Professor Mattock, what's happening down there? Are the men safe? I think so, Miss Scriblet. Dr. San explained to them over the radio where to find the ventilation shaft. So I think the men actually spent very little time down there. And they're coming out now. Look! Shadouf! Shadouf, how are they all? Professor Matov, we all good at the moment. Everybody get out safe thanks to your Chinese friend. Good. And look, Professor, I record it all for your video diary. See what the fifth chamber looks like then. Is that all you can think about, Stella? Yes. Me too. Plug it in. We are just breaking through to the fifth chamber now. Shadow, when you get in there, turn immediately to the right. Follow the wall to the first corner. There you will find a steep ramp leading up to an arch opening. Do you see it? Yes, I see it. At the top of the ramp, look to your left, away from the arch, and you will see the bottom of the ventilation shaft. That is your escape. Okay, we are at the top of the ramp, and uh, there it is. But... What? Nothing. Just that, well, if we don't make it out, be sure Professor Matok see this video somehow. Shadow, don't waste time. Just get out of there quick. Okay, come. My God, did you see that? In that room through the arch. Was it 
what I think it was. A horse made of gold. And a golden chariot. And a golden sarcophagus. So they did entomb King Snefru here. And they'd used the Chinese waste bunker as a concrete foundation to build the Red Pyramid on top. At least all that treasure will be safe from robbers for a long time to come. How do you mean? Well, we'll have to file a report, of course. The authorities will insist that the whole edifice be completely sealed off, buried under concrete. Yeah, I suppose they will. And we won't even get to see King Snethru's tomb or touch the marvels that it contains. Not for another thousand years, probably. Ah, Dr San, you might be just the person. What can I do for you, Professor? Dr San, from your experience, if a person in the 21st century wanted to travel forward in time, a thousand years, say, how might he go about doing that? In John Stanbury's The Passage of Time, Professor Mattock was played by Jim Norris, Stella Palstave by Val Harrison and Dr Sand by Mark Devlin. Shadoof was played by Barney Burnham, Mason and Dr Pangloss by Martin Bourne and our own thespian archaeologist Jane Fairs played Miss Scriblet. The Passage of Time was recorded in our studio here in Wilds Lane and was directed by John Plush. And with the clock counting down, our 90 minutes is almost up. Just 44 seconds left for a final word from Philip Larkin. Catherine. Days. What are days for? Days are where we live. They come, they wake us time and time over. They're to be happy in. Where can we live but days? Ah, solving that question brings the priest and the doctor in their long coats running over the fields. And an observation from Phil. Time flies. You can't. They do it too quickly. Five, four, three, two, one. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.